I think the rock bottom inside of the practice is bring your attention to the ways in which your heart either is present to you to respond in companioning and friendship and consolation and appreciation because it's those responses to what's outside of oneself that liberates the mind from its preoccupation with its own separate self-isolation. That's really those connections that make the life alive and that that's really what the practice is about. That paying attention to what gets in the way of that and then doing whatever needs to be done to undo what's getting in the way of that so that the natural inclination of the heart can manifest itself. That's a long sentence, but I think it's the one sentence, I think it's the one sentence definition of what practice is about for me. It wasn't when I began, you know, many of you who've known me for a long time know that I, I probably began meditation practice because everybody else was doing it. I mean, that's not a reason. I mean, it's a reason, but it's not a very good motivation for it. And it wouldn't carry me along if it were the ongoing motivation for it. But it was the 70s, and everybody was doing that. As a, and they were doing it, actually, to create altered mind states that were extraordinary. They were another way of getting high, actually. And the idea behind them was that we could get to do them and feel blissful. And this is not about that bliss is not good, bliss is great. But bliss is an endpoint really isn't the point of practice, that bliss as an eraser of antipathy so that the heart can do its thing. That'd be all right. Well, I once had a teacher who said to me, so the problem with you, Shelley, I'm echoing all over the place. Um, he said, the problem with you, I was having tremendous, I was having a tremendous amount of wonderful ecstatic states. It was just a time in my practice. Sometimes now I miss it. And they, oh, I wouldn't mind a little bit of that good old ecstasy. But anyway, it was, it, was a, it was a period of time when, for reasons that people have different kinds of ways in which their practice unfolds. And mine, for whatever reason, for a period of some years, was very embodied with all kinds of extraordinary energies going here and there, which I could get very interested in and very, um, oh, uh, puffed up about, you know, look at me, I have these interesting energies. I probably have told uh, enough of you, enough times, the story of going to see Chagdud Rinpoche, who was, is, not sure he's still in this world, Chagdud, maybe not, was a Tibetan uh, teacher of some renown who was visiting in the Bay Area, and the Tibetans are very well known for working with extraordinary energy States. So I had an appointment to go see Chagdud in East Bay, and uh, I went to see him and talked through uh, through an interpreter. He spoke English, but the English was needed interpreting. Um, but he and I had a very good connection, and I loved his feeling about him. And I explained all my exotic and extraordinary and dramatic energy states that were happening in my body and in my mind. And when I got all finished, you know, I spoke, first of all, I was interested in his insights. I thought he'd give me a practice to calm them down because they were a little distracting. You know, it was peculiar to be amongst people and feel filled with these energies and you couldn't concentrate. And 
So I, it, I, it felt sort of like a virus or something. And uh, in between the times that I thought I was special and wonderful because I had it, and that was also. So I wanted him to think that I was special and wonderful, and I wanted him also to cure my virus because I was uncomfortable. And I couldn't concentrate when I was at work. So I told him my whole story. And when I got all finished, he said, um, when I thought he was going to tell me now do this in his practice, he said, um, how much time do you spend every day in compassion practice? So I, uh, I said something that's really it's embarrassing now. I told him the textbook answer about compassion, about mindfulness practice, that mindfulness leads to wisdom, which opens the heart to compassion. It's true, actually. But um, that when we are mindful, when we really look around and we see what's going on in the world, we become heartbroken about it. And that compassion is the natural um, response to that. But I don't think I knew that so much in my being. I knew it so much because it was the textbook response. So I told him, well, da 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 I got all finished with my textbook response. And he said, no, really? How much compassion practice do you do every day? And I said, well, what do you mean, actually? Because at this point, I, and he said, well, how much do you go out in the street every day and just look around and see how people are suffering? And I thought to myself, um, I wonder if I should feel embarrassed now. I wonder if he's mocking me in some way or if he is seeing the ego that was involved in my special state preoccupation. But he was completely without mock. You know, it was, it was, it was completely, it was completely just a plain question. How much do you go out in the street every day and look around and see what's going on? And I really would have liked to talk to him more about it. And uh, our time was coming to the end, so I couldn't. And it was all right with me that I didn't get to talk to him about it more because this is at least 15 years ago that it happened, at least 15 years ago. And there are times every year, or times frequently, that I think to myself, now I got it, what he meant. Now I got it, what he meant. Now I really got it, what I meant. What I thought I had, I didn't. Now I really got it. I actually believe that you can't see until you see. And when you see how broken things are, how much people suffer, not just the outside suffering of... Um, when literally you go out in the street, you see people who are homeless. You go out in the street, you see people who are very physically handicapped. You see parents of children who are very physically challenged. And you look at them and you realize this is a whole life in that situation. If you look with your eyes, you see the degree of challenge through which people are continuing to live lives. If you read the newspaper, you see the degree of challenge to which people are living lives. You see on top of that the degree of challenge through which people are obligated to live in terms of the conflicts that are going out and going on in the world because of confusion and delusion. It's heartbreaking. Don't get angry, you get sad. What could I possibly do? I actually think that that's, that, that it's those moments of actually seeing like that one way or another, and realizing, oh, what I wish I could do would be make this better. That really, that puts us in touch with our own capacity, compassion. 
And for myself, in those moments, my own uh, preoccupations with uh, my own stories, who I'm mad at, who didn't say right, who didn't do right, who didn't look right, what I didn't do right, all of those stories of um, grudge on somebody else or grudge on myself fall away. Because they're, they're just nonsense compared to what's really important. Don't you find that? I'm like so startled. There's no room in the startled mind. The startled mind that opens up and says, look, the world is full of such tremendous challenge. How really can we be anything but kind? That, by the way, was the first, something like that, was one of the first um, sentences that I heard. Here's a story around it. In 1977, in the spring of 1977, I went to a three-day meditation retreat in San Jose, Friday to Sunday, in someone's private house with no preparation whatsoever. My husband told me this is a good thing to do, why don't you try it? And um, he drove me there, he dropped me off, it was terribly hot. It was really crowded, there were 15, 20 people there in a three-bedroom house, all sleeping on the floor, on mattresses too close together, getting dressed and undressed together. It was just uh, all kinds of things uncomfortable for me. Um, in silence, in the heat, sitting for long periods, all day long, sitting and walking, sitting and walking, in a tiny little shed in the backyard. I think it used to be a gardening shed or a garage or something, now a meditation hall. And the whole of the weekend, I had a most terrible headache because no one told me there wasn't going to be coffee, and I had a caffeine withdrawal headache. And the whole of the weekend, I was rehearsing the 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 speeches I would make to my husband on the way home <laughs> about what a bad time I had, what nonsense it was, what idiocy, what a mistake it was to listen to him. And two months later, I was on an airplane going to a two-week retreat, um, and I haven't stopped. Uh, and it, I think back, people ask me, if you had such a bad time on your first retreat, why? I, you know. And I'm not sure. Uh, two things happened on that retreat. One is people did talk about the heart's sure release, the possibility of a mind that was at ease. Somehow, through my gigantic funk, I must have heard that and maybe felt it in some way. That was one piece. I must have had some moment where it occurred to me, maybe this is true, because that's the best promise in the world. It could be okay. You could live with your mind in this body, in this world, in this life, and it'll be okay. That's great, great news. That must have somehow gotten through. The other thing is there was on the fireplace of this room, on the mantelpiece of the living room of this house, was a redwood burrow. You know those kind you buy? You buy it in a national park. You could buy it up here in Muir Woods, probably. One of those polished burls, they say, sisters of friends forever, home sweet home, uh, father knows best, something or other. Anyway, there was a, one of those burls that said, um, life is so difficult, how could we be anything but kind? And I thought, you know, if that's what they do here, I like this, I get it. 
that um, a path that led to the response of kindness somehow spoke to me. I think it's the response of kindness which is in itself of necessity a connection, even if we're kind with ourselves. It's a connection, it's a non-isolating movement of the heart is what makes it possible to go on. And sometimes, you know, I was listening to us making prayers this morning, and um, more of them were for people in trouble, people with chemotherapy, people with addictions, people in trouble, people in pain, and some of them for people starting their first day of kindergarten, and some of them for their second year in college, and. I thought to myself, well, Harrison's birthday is the day after tomorrow, okay, make my private prayer for him. Um, I have uh, right on my lap here a Dharma talk written by a friend of mine, um, my friend Tamara. My friend Tamara is a uh, mindfulness teacher from New York. She's actually one of the founders of New York Insight. And she moved to um, Florida with her partner a year ago as the next stage in their life together. Settling down, she's writing there, she's hoping to teach there, and recently diagnosed with ovarian cancer and uh, started her chemotherapy for it. And so she wrote a Dharma talk, which she sent back to her group in uh, New York and to her friends at New York Insight for them to use in their groups in New York. And um, I want to tell you just a little bit about it. And she called it a proper cup of tea. And uh, she got that name from a poem by uh, Miriam Novell. She said, I found this poem on a menu in a tea shop in Soho many years ago when I was beginning my practice. This is the poem. There are times when I sat with a cup of tea and drifted away. There are times when I sat with a cup of tea and contemplated the day. There are times that I sat with a cup of tea and wished for a longer day. There are times when I just sat with a cup of tea. So, I know that that poem has been uh, uh, an important one for tomorrow for a long time. For me, what does it mean to you? I'll tell you what it means to me. What does it mean to just sit with a proper cup of tea? Yeah, that's what it meant to you. That's what it meant to you. That's what tea means to me. Like having a drink mm-hmm. that you know is kind of good for you in a way, that it's not mm-hmm. harmful, it's not a negative thing. It's a comfortable moment. Yeah. Sufficient unto itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What else? Never thought about it. Maybe the moment without um, expectation. Moment without expectation. Mm-hmm. Because she said, you know, there are times I have a cup of tea and drifted away, so it's a moment of sleepiness. A cup of tea and contemplated the day, so it's the mind figuring. Cup of tea and I wish for a longer day, so that's wanting. Just a cup of tea doesn't want anything. Longer, shorter, different, figured. It's sufficient unto itself. That the mind could rest, be a friend to itself, just keep itself company. Not want, not need other. If someone came to me and said, would you want other in the world right now? 
I got a list. I don't have to think about it. I want this with the election. I want this with that. I want this with Iraq. I want this with the Middle East. I have a big list of things that I would rather have. Can I be for a moment without be able to say, that's not happening right now, and my mind's resting? It's a mind without an imperative about different. That's actually the, the, the most crucial teaching of the Buddha in terms of what is suffering and what is not suffering. That the mind that doesn't demand that things be different now is the mind that's, uh, that rests. That my friend Tamara is writing this because she's discovered she has ovarian cancer. And she's very clear that she would rather not have it. But she has it. And she, what she's really talking about is, can I have the kind of mind that says, I have it, I'm not happy about it. I'll read you her line about uh, the chemotherapy. Now I have to find it, too. Talking about preferences. I do not have a preference for this illness that I have. Um, we'll come back for a while. Shoshana, what were you going to say? Well, she's got a preference. Here, I found the place of preference. She said, I came, here she is talking about her whole experience. And she said, uh, I came around to remembering the very first teaching that I had of the Buddha, the summary of the Four Noble Truths. Life is about suffering and the end of suffering. She said, I love it when I come full circle because that usually means I'm not spinning my wheels but following my path. So I like that. And then she said, I thought about the teaching about the two arrows. You know about the two arrows? That the fr- if someone shoots you with an arrow, that's the first pain. If you then take another arrow and stick yourself with it, that's another pain. The second arrow is the arrow that says, why me? Why not me? People get cancer in the world. Why now? Why not now? I mean, it's a, a you know, Things happen to people when they happen to people. Uh, I don't deserve this. Nobody deserves it. Things happen. That the sec- that that anguish arrow, which is the arrow that says it shouldn't be this way. It is this way, which doesn't mean it's. I like it the way it is. So she said the second arrow is suffering. All the mental stories and formulations about it. Cancer is the first arrow. It hurts. I don't like it one bit. What is much harder to process is the shock, the trauma, to my sense of self, who I think I am, how I think and thought that my life would unfold. The Buddha said that this was our greatest cause of suffering. He was correct. Joseph Goldstein, in his personal way, uh, particular way, puts an interesting and, I think, compassionate spin on this. He said that the mind is slippery and plays tricks on us. We take consistency for permanence. It's no surprise that I've been blessedly healthy for 60 years and therefore expected that that would continue. But it didn't. 
She tells one story, though, that made me think that if I, I love this. The whole talk was very inspiring to me, and I know about it. But, and she called the, the talk a proper cup of tea. And I thought to myself, well, if Tamara publishes this talk sometime, I hope she'll call it, I didn't know whether I should laugh or cry. And this is a story. You know, in a, in a certain sense, when we were listening to uh, everybody's prayers, and we heard this one with this particular pain, and that one with that particular pain, and then so-and-so is going to kindergarten the first time. And everybody laughed. It was like a little ripple of laugh. And I could have said, Harrison's about to be seven. It's amazing. And everybody would have said, mm. And uh, Phyllis's daughter is in her second year of school. And everybody said, ah. I think to myself that it's amazing that our mind goes up and down, up and down all day long. You get a news about something. And then you get a news about something else. And then you get a news about something else. And then you get a news about something else. And if your heart is available, it goes up and down and up and down and up and down. And it should. I don't want a heart that just rides through the life saying, well, karma is unfolding. I used to think that, by the way, when I began. I had some nonsense idea that if I meditated enough, my mind would become so uh, permeated with the sense of karma. This is the karma of things. I have it actually permeated with karma. But I do believe that this is the karma of things. I'm convinced it couldn't be otherwise. Nevertheless, my body is a human body. And if I hear something dreadful happen to anybody, I feel, <gasps> and I feel something dreadful happen to somebody I know and care about, I feel a bigger, <gasps> and I think that's part of being an animal and having a body and having neurons that respond, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I think in the beginning, I actually wanted to have it the other way. I, want, I, I had a very interesting paradox going in my mind. I wanted to have it the other way, and I was afraid to have it the other that I might get it the other way. I wanted to be able to withstand the shock of disappointment and loss so that I thought to myself, someday in life I'm going to have some very heavy losses, because everybody does. And I had had, at that point, some losses. As I want to be able to say, well, this is what happened. I like those stories about people who say, well, this is what's happening. I remember Ramdas saying, you get a, uh, at one point, you hear, you get a diagnosis of cancer. You say, oh, so interesting. I thought, wow, that'd be a big thing to be able to do. No, three of my very close friends have cancer at this point. Nobody is saying, oh, that's interesting. Everybody is saying, I don't want to have this cancer. I'm doing the best I can. And I'm trying not to be furious, and I'm doing everything I can, and I'm trying the best I can to live, and I might not. And that makes me really sad, and I really wish I didn't have it. They say it's pretty interesting, because the world doesn't look the same anymore. When you get up the next morning, after you had the diagnosis the day before, you get up and your old self has actually died. The self that got up, thinking of itself as, well, has gone forever. And Tamara said, you know, if I get this in remission, which is I'd like to, you got to watch it the whole rest of your life because it might come back. Mm -hmm. And those people who haven't had a cancer yet don't get up every day wondering about it is back. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't get up in the morning actually wondering if we're going to cross all the streets that day and not get hit or whether we're going to come home on the highway. 
from what might happen to us, you know. You, the truth is you never know. But the truth is that you don't think about you never know until you get a big blow to your personal self. And then you get it. Never know. So she told this story, which I, I love a lot because uh, Tamara and I are old friends. And we talk a lot about shopping. She writes a lot of shopping haikus. She grew up with a mother whose way of relating was to shop and to dress her. She's a very beautiful woman. She's a very beautiful child. And her mother loved dressing her. And her mother loved shopping. And they weren't affluent. So her mother liked shopping for bargains. She was kind of a chronic shopper. She had actually, I think, a shopping habit. And <laughs> if you live in New York, you can shop and return and shop and return and comparative shop. Anybody here had mothers who did that, who did shopping as a, yeah, it's like a, it's like a thing that you do. You go shopping. And then you buy stuff and you return it, and especially if it has a designer label cut out and you got it for a low price. Anyway, Tamara's mother and Tamara are writing a book about shopping as an interpersonal activity because it really has defined their life together. So she has a very keen sense of style as an adult. And she always looks beautiful. And uh, she's always dressed herself in a beautiful way. So she said... Uh, uh, they went for their first chemotherapy um, appointment with their oncologist. And she says, she and her partner, and she said they were quite worried when, you, when they were going. You know, it's the first time, and you don't know how it's going to be. And said, came to this hospital. She said, seeing the can words Cancer Institute on the door took my breath away. This is becoming more real. I reached for Jim's hand at the same moment that he reached for mine. Once we entered, the receptionist gave me the de rigueur clipboard with forms and questionnaires. When I completed them, I returned the clipboard to the receptionist who told me that it would be about 20 minutes before the doctor would see me. Next to the receptionist's desk was a gift shop. Aha, I thought. <laughs> it shouldn't be a total loss. <laughs> I anticipated finding greeting cards, stuffed animals, fresh flowers, and books of the chicken soup of the soul genre. When I walked in, my jaw dropped. This was a gift shop for cancer accessories. I first noticed a, a row of wigs. Then I noticed scarves and a baseball cap and a needlepoint pillow that said, cancer sucks. There was another needlepoint pillow that said, eat preservatives. There were also lots of pink ribbon pins and pendants. I thought to myself, I don't know if I should laugh or cry. And I think to myself that that place of awakened awareness of, I don't know if I should laugh or cry, you know, that where the mind and the heart are so fully awake, you could do both. Mm -hmm. It's tremendously touching, isn't it? Yeah. There's something about the ability to laugh and the ability to cry. One of my really lifelong spiritual buddies, a really close spiritual friend of mine, been friends for more than 30 years. She. Uh, is, uh, is my friend Mary. She's a Dominican nun, is, was, still is. Uh, she was teaching a class in 1972 that I took as part of my doctoral program called Introduction to Eastern Religions. So she was the first person who taught me Buddhism. So I think it's a wonderful, uh, I think it's a wonderful comment on the times that I learned about the Buddha that a Jewish woman learned about the Buddha from a Dominican nun. 
<laughs> it's wonderful. Um, and we went on to be very good friends all these years. But I remember in that very first day, in that very first class that I took with her, she said, she was talking about what is religion anyway and what's a religious experience. She said a religious experience, by the way, is something that passes like all other experiences, but something after which you are not the same again. Mm. And I think about those insight experiences that we talk about all the time in meditation, and the experience that, you have, that my friend Tamara is now telling me about, about the world does not look the same once you wake up and know that your body has cancer growing in it. It's a different world. It looks different. It feels different. The teaching about temporality is way more vivid. I might not be alive as long as I thought I was going to be, is what she's saying. What do I really want to do? I think so much about the expressions in our, um, in our, in our vocabulary, that some of which are really um, so painful for me to hear. We have the expression where people will say, uh, I missed my flight, so I had three hours to kill in the uh, Chicago airport. Mm -hmm. And I think to myself, we haven't got a moment to lose. Not three hours to kill, not a second. That there isn't a moment that isn't full of the possibility of seeing clearly the truth of things. You could look at people in the Chicago airport, see them coming and going, and think about everybody's got a story. You really looked at everybody in the Chicago airport, you could get enlightened in the Chicago airport. Just looking at them and seeing what's going on, see the amount of pain, see the amount of people taking care of other people, carrying them, holding them up, moving them around. I love that. I spend a fair amount of time in airports. There are always people taking care of other people, sitting them down, standing them up, getting them on board, getting them off, taking care of them could see a lot about what makes life manageable, or worthwhile, meaningful. So on that very first day of class, my friend Mary, 37 years ago, said what makes human beings different from other animals is uh, they laugh and they bury their dead. And I, st I saved that with me in my mind all these 32 years thinking about it. I think I, you know. I'd like to. I'd like to interpret that as meaning we laugh and we cry. I don't know that animals don't laugh and cry. By the way, you know, I think about that. I know that animals feel sad. That and people write about that dogs feel sad when their people die, or when they get given away to somebody else. Don't know how long it takes them to get over it. Different dogs. There are great stories about dogs who waited for thirty years for their people to come home, but I don't know. And I don't know whether, uh, I, I'm always fond of saying I watch the cows up where I live in Sonoma passing by each other on the hill. I don't know if they're telling each other jokes. They might be, you know, about how funny it is to be a cow, you know, uh, or the problems of being a cow, or whether they're complaining about that the grass is drier this year than last year. I mean, they might be, you know. but. I'm not, you know, we tend to think that human beings have foresight and hindsight. And as a result of that, we have the ability to look at the story of a life and see how ironic it is that, you know, in spite of the fact that it's so different, I don't know whether irony is the right word, how poignant it is. 
in spite of the fact that it's so difficult, we keep doing it. We keep hoping it's going to get better. We keep trying again. That we keep trying to improve ourselves, or fix ourselves, or get a better job, or a new relationship, or uh, whatever it is is going to make it better. We're looking so hard for it to get better in some way. And it's very touching, and on the other hand, it's very heroic. Here is Tamara saying to me, I don't know how much time I have left. Maybe not so much. I really want to teach Dharma. I haven't had a chance to set up a Dharma group down yet, so now I'm writing Dharma talks and I'm sending them to my friends so they can tell them to their groups so that my Dharma is out in the world. So I can feel, I'll go home and call Tamara and say, I taught your Dharma, and 60 people appreciated what you had to say about a proper cup of tea. But, and I think that that mind coming to a place of saying, I can't move. I don't know whether to laugh or to cry. That we do both. We laugh at our situation. How I laugh at the fact that somebody figured out to make a baseball cap that says cancer sucks, you know? Yeah. And that other people will laugh about it. But it's a way to cover your bald head when you have chemotherapy or a needlepoint pillow. And that somehow the momentary tickle that it gives people lifts up the moment. I've thought about this, you know, I, when I, um, not so long ago I was in the radiology clinic at um, um, UCSF because every couple of years, if you, as you get older, you have to have bone scans if you're a woman to see if your bones are deteriorating. So I'm waiting for my scan and I'm sitting in this radiology clinic where, waiting room and you can tell that most people there are not in health. They, they're pale or they're bald or they're in some way not looking comfortable. And I'm one of the few people that is looking okay, I think. I, you know, I'm there for just a uh, routine kind of a thing. So people are waiting for their appointments. And there are uh, televisions all over the ceiling in the waiting room coming down. And everybody is sitting and watching a soap opera. And I think to myself, and everybody's glued to their soap opera all over. I look around, and I think to myself, we could look at each other, you know? <laughs> Everybody here is a soap opera. This one is bald, this one is 10 years old, this one is on a cane, this one is bloated, probably taking steroids, this one is this, this one. We don't have to be watching here. We could be turning to each other and saying, um, how are you managing these days? What's keeping you going? What holds you up the most? What do you know that I could hold me up a little bit? I think to myself, we're such repositories of information about what we could do. I was going to talk about determination a little bit today. <laughs> I am. I'll tell you about what I, I, I what? You're determined. I'm determined. I am to talking about determination. My friend Tamara is determined to use every moment. What I'm partly thinking about are two things. Well, no, really, the biggest sense of determination, the Buddha taught determination as one of the ten paramitas. Did I bring the book? Okay. I'm going to read you a story about determination, which I like very much. That's the Buddhist... Um, it's a touching story. I hope you like it. It's a Jataka tale. The monkey who would not give up. He's a 
children's stories, Buddhist children's stories. The Buddha, in a prior incarnation as the chief of a band of monkeys, steadfastly protected his tribe from being discovered and harmed by the people who lived downstream on the Ganges from the huge and wonderful mango tree in which they lived. One day, a mango fell from the tree and was carried by the river to the bathing site of King Brahmadatta, who, enchanted by the taste of the fruit, traveled with a search party and found the tree. The monkeys overheard the men planning to kill them and eat their meat as well as the mangoes. They were terrified. The chief of the monkeys, determined to save them, tied a reed to his foot, leapt across the river, and barely managed to grasp a branch on the other side. Run across the reed, he called, and over my back. 80,000 monkeys ran to safety. The monkey chief's back was broken. King Brahmadatta held him as he died and asked him who he was. The monkey said, I am their king and I love them. I do not suffer since by my death my subjects are free. Remember, it's not your sword that makes you king. It is love alone. Thereafter, Brahmadatta ruled with love and his people were happy ever after. What do you think of that story, by the way? <laughs> Actually, people start to cry when I read it. Do you start to cry when you hear about the monkey's back was broken? It always moves me a little bit to tears, that, that selfless give of yourself. But it's, it's what's often given as a, as a determination story. I'm determined to make something of my life that's valuable to other people not just mine. Yeah? I think there's a piece that speaks to me about wholeheartedness. About wholeheartedness, yeah. Whatever it is that you're doing, no matter what it is, is a whole person. I think that's a wonderful thing to think about. Think about that, because in a minute we're going to do a little, little think about what did we ever do in our lives wholeheartedly. I want to tell you one more piece of story to put in so we can have that as part of determination. I read an article a couple of weeks ago in uh, the New York Times. You know how I like to read the back page of the Sunday New York Times magazine section. And I really was interested in this because it has to do with determination in terms of changing the way the mind functions. You know, we talk a lot about meditation practice being uh, seeing how the habits of mind are destructive. And in the seeing, having them fall away, seeing the habits of mind that actually lead to suffering and saying, look at that. I keep, when I think this and then this and then this and do this, I end up feeling bad and I keep doing it. That's a mind loop. Let me, you know, and, and that if I see it enough, it'll fall away. A lot of other people might say, I keep seeing it and I keep having it. It's just there. I was born with it. This is a very, this article touched me a lot. It's written by a woman who said, I don't want to read you the whole article. My father and I were in the laundry room having a crisis. It was the strangest thing, but I couldn't stop crying. There were other weird things happening. I was wearing a kippah, yarmulke, and a nightgown, and uh, there were my hands, red and raw and wrapped in plastic baggies. There were paper towels under my feet, and most of what I owned was in the washing machine, not just whites and colors, but shoes, barrettes, and backpacks. 
You want to tell me what happened here, my father said? Wasn't it obvious? The few, then she goes on to say, I had, the, I had the onset of an obsessive compulsive washing disease when I was an adolescent. And it coincided with my interest in religious practice. And I became, I took the religious practice to the nth degree of doing all the rules with such scrupulosity and then hiding the scrupulosity as religious practice. Many years later, we figured out I had a strange condition called scrupulosity, a religion-focused form of obsessive-compulsive disorder. The disease hit me when I was 12 and plagued me on and off throughout my teens, making every day a surprising and mortifying adventure. So feel for this 12-year-old girl. Um, in 1982, we didn't know what it was. Uh, I did have a tiny history of compulsive behavior earlier. I said, but I had been studying for my, my bat mitzvah. I was interested in uh, religious observance. And in fact, I became intoxicated by the rules. Uh, it wasn't long before, I'm skipping, it wasn't long before my family noticed that I was acting oddly. I was getting, getting clean enough to eat became an elaborate 30-minute process. Meals were invariably delayed because if I touched anything, I'd have to start all over again. So I wandered around the house with my hands held up like a surgeon until it was time to eat. My mother would ask, are you all, <laughs> it's very sad, are you all scrubbed your big <laughs> casserole like <to> me? <laughs> Are you scrubbed for your casserole like to me, Dr. Trey? You know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's written very funny, but it's terribly sad. Think about this 12-year-old. I'm doing isometric hand exercises. I lied. Is there some reason we've gone through six rolls of paper toweling today, my mother demanded. Finally, after months of washing, I tearfully confessed to everything. I was as bewildered as they were. I'd been okay a few months ago. Now suddenly, here we are in the laundry room, and my, all of my belongings were floating in detergent. My parents had conferences and harsh discussions with consultants and psychologist friends. They didn't know what to do with me. In the end, they simply drew up a contract. I could not proselytize. I could not chant. I could not supervise my mother's cooking. I could not rewash clean dishes or clothes or body parts. And if I failed to meet these terms, my classmates would be told of my idiosyncrasies. And I don't know why this worked. The only thing my parents were threatening me with was embarrassment. And I'd been embarrassed myself daily for months. Maybe I had just had enough, or maybe I knew that as much as I could torture myself, my classmates were capable of much worse. So I stopped. Just like that. Now that was the part that I really thought about. I stopped. She said, maybe there was some tapering, but I don't remember it. And I read it. She goes on to say, here I am, 20 or 30 years later. I'm a grown-up woman without an obsessive compulsive disorder. When my life gets difficult, I start to see my obsessive habits starting in again. Anybody here notices that in them? I mean, I do. When I, when I start to get tense about things, I start to organize my drawers, you know, and straighten things out. It makes me feel better. I fold it. You don't have that? Nobody has it? If you have it, let's hear it. Okay, all right, there you go. There are, there are things that if you do certain things, it'll be all right. It just makes your mind feel better. 
So the idea is that not to use it as a good tool when you use it, the tool out of control where you have to wash for 10 hours and wash your hands off. The part that really touched me is I just stopped. I was determined not to torture myself further. I had some correspondence in the last few weeks. I was thinking about this with the determination that the mind can do anything. Because I think there are things that the mind can't do, even that it's determined, and there are things that somehow it can do. It's a very interesting question in terms of what we, how we push practice. Um, I had some uh, letters back and forth from Dodie. She's not here today. Dodie's a woman uh, with uh, MS who can't speak, who comes from time to time. You, pro- you probably are recognizing her now. But she can email because she can write on her uh, computer. And she was reminding me of uh, uh, a man named Jack Schwartz years ago who used to be part of a whole series of magic or people with tremendous uh, mind powers who could do all kinds of things. There There were conferences called The Mind Can Do Anything. And Jack Schwartz would take a needle, drop it on the floor in front of thousands of people, rub it around on the floor to make sure that it was not sterile, take that needle, like a big knitting needle, and stick it through his arm while he watched and not flinch. And he could just put his mind in such a place that they did that. Uri Geller was building bending spoons and starting watches. It was the pre-meditation decade. Do you remember it, Chris? That pre-meditation? Huh? Uri Geller. Um, people were moving things by dint of will, by concentrating on a pencil on a table and having it move off. And all of those conferences, which were very heady, uh, exciting, were uh, billed as the mind can do anything. And uh, I was thinking about the determination of still mind, do not react, that causes people to be able to stick pins in themselves. Or And I, I really wanted to come around to saying there's a certain amount of determination that I think I'm going to do this with my mind that really inspires me. And what, after all those, I'm inspired by this young girl saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I moved it over to being, uh, to thinking those two things together and thinking the biggest thing that I think the mind can do is be able to look at what's happening in life and say, this is what's true. It can't be other. I am determined to not be in an adversarial relationship with my life. I am determined not to become embittered by it. I am determined not to resent this. I am determined to live in peace. I think that's what the Buddha taught. And this, that power of determination comes out the most, um, well, it comes out dramatically in lots of Buddha stories. But, you know, the, er- the, the early Buddha stories, we can go back to the stories before his illumination, there are stories about him studying with his first teachers where he sat out in the scorching sun for hours and hours and managed to stay there and didn't mind the heat on his body, or where he didn't lie down and practice meditating, sitting up for huge long stretches of time, or where he, according to legend, only ate one rice grain for uh, one rice grain a week is what it says, until his backbone could be seen through his belly. Now, I take these to be fables, you know, but maybe. But I think they mean something even in the fable. 
But what he says at the end of that period of training, which was six years, he said, I can do a lot of things, but I haven't come to the end of suffering. And he says, suffering really is that piece of the mind that fights with what's going on and doesn't see it as just what's happening and can't meet it with a benevolent heart. And it seems to me that what he's saying is that the ability of the mind and the heart to meet an experience, not with gritting the teeth, but with tremendous love, is what's the capacity, is that bottom line determination place that we want to get to. So the image that I like the best is the image of the Buddha under the bow tree on the night of his enlightenment, where it said he sat down and was determined not to get up. That's where the the determination hook was. He said, I'm determined not to get up until I have seen vanquished fully the anything that disturbs the mind and the heart from its place of peace. And according to the legend, he is then assailed by the forces of distraction, the forces of Mara. And they come in the form of every frightening thought in the world. When you see it depicted as a legend, you see spears and arrows being shot at him. And uh, I will not be uh, distracted by uh, any kind of sensual pleasure. So it's depicted in legend as erotica, whatever kind of turns you on or might distract or arouse your body into a place of desire. So here comes all these uh, forces of um, tempting with desire and um, frightening with scary stuff. And here's the Buddha radiating out in a determined way, radiating out uh, loving kindness. Just, I am impervious to this. I am determined to have any temptation in the whole world come by and I will not be moved. That's interesting. The whole last sentence I heard both, um, uh, and lead us not into temptation, and uh, just like a tree that stands beside the waters, we will not be moved. That determination to just stay exactly where you are, hold your place, take your place, insist that it's rightly yours. So presumably here, all through the night, is Mara in all these different forms assaulting the Buddha, and he is determined to be there. And presumably with the morning star, he sees fully the the way in which the mind that used to be able to be trapped into greed and hatred and delusion and confusion doesn't have to do it. He sees that freedom is a possibility and then teaches it. I frequently tell people that when I sit down to meditate or when I, when I'm, actually when I'm having some really hard time with myself, my mind's not in a good shape, I sit down and I visualize that incident with the Buddha and I say to myself, I am determined not to get up until my mind is completely free. And people laugh about that, you know, like, you don't really think you're going to get enlightened by the Buddha like the Buddha did. I don't think for good and all, but I actually do believe that if I sit down with the determination that my mind will unconfuse itself, it will. Actually, it's the very determination. I refuse. Don't you think? Is that your experience? 
you do that? I don't sit down and say to myself, I am determined to stay with my breath. I say, I am determined to rescue my mind from whatever knot it's tied in so that it can come back into my heart that loves. That's actually what my practice is. It's not about being with the breath. It's about not being caught in a knot of anything. Does that all make sense? So I wanted us to talk to each other for a minute. Mm. I was thinking about the way that people who are determined to make something happen. I, I was thinking of Uri with that um, the mind can do anything. I mean, actually, it was a parenthetical thing that came in my mind because Dodie had written to me about it. And I thought about how for that decade, I was sort of entranced with how the mind could do all those things, really will things to happen. And I thought to myself, that's not what I want to will to happen. I want to build, bend a spoon. You know? uh, I actually don't want to have those exotic states. Remember I was talking in the beginning about Chagdas? I actually don't want to have those exotic states. They're tiresome. I want to be able to not get caught in a loop of confusion that prevents me from loving in this moment. Mm -hmm. That's what I want. What do you want? Mm -hmm. Think to yourself, if somebody, you remember in the beginning, I, well, that's, that's, the clearest, that's the clearest enunciation I can do of what I, why I, what I am determined to do by myself. You know, when, when we recite the benefits of metta, we've done it here, people who, practice metta, sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams, people love them, angels love them, angels will protect them, poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them, their faces are clear, their minds are serene, they die unconfused, and when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. And sometimes when we do that, I say, what's your favorite line? You know, if someone said, okay, you can have one of those 11 things right now, what are you having? The one that I'm having <coughs> It's either, and they're, they're quite close, either their minds are serene or they die unconfused. I actually want to live unconfused, is what I want. I worry about the die when I get there. I want to live unconfused because then I'll be, then I'll be in the place that I want to be. Take very good care of yourself during the week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.